Well, hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer, and this week I catch up with the CEO of Webjet. Now, this guy saw his share price plummet when the coronavirus came to town and shut down the travel and flying industry. But his company has been targeted by retail mums and dads and novice new age young investors who are out to make their fortune on a share price rebound. Let's find out if this is actually on the cards by talking to the man who's running the show, John Gusick. And then I'll talk to a hotshot young bond fund manager, Ying Yi Cheng from Coolabar Capital, which is one of the hottest bond fund managers in the country. Ying Yi also tells us, because she's an expert on interest rates, is it time to fix your home loan interest rate? That's your show. Let's kick off and talk to the CEO of Webjet, John Gusick, and we're doing this with him ensconced in Tunisia of all places. One company expected to do well once we go back to normalcy, whenever that happens, is Webjet. Uh, and joining us now is the CEO of Webjet, John Gusick. John, thanks for joining us. Delighted to be here, Peter. Great to see you again. Yeah, same here, mate. Now, historically, whenever we met to discuss the performance of Webjet, it was generally, I would say, uh, the, the six or seven times we, we did it on TV, I'd say six out of seven times, you had fantastic news to report. I think there might have been one hiccup along the way. And I, I think even before the coronavirus, correct me if I'm wrong, the company was actually having a, a ripper of a run and then the coronavirus came to, uh, came to town. Did, did you ever, ever think about putting that into your risk management that a pandemic might rock your business? No. <laughs> One simple word, no. And I think you're in a very, very big majority. Um, as a consequence of encountering a pandemic, what has it really meant for your business? Just describe the, the, the real-life implications for your business. Yeah, ours, ours was um, a, a dramatic reversal um, as you as you as you just mentioned, we were we were having a record year. We're on track to exceed guidance as of February of this year. And just remind your viewers, we're only in October. But as of February of this year, um, if it wasn't for the the fact that uh, we were hearing stories about the impact of coronavirus in uh, China, we were we were going to upgrade our earnings. And we'd made on a calendar year basis 155 million of EBITDA in uh, 2019. So everything was looking great. Um, coronavirus comes along and it has an immediate impact on a business like ours. Firstly, uh, by the time we get to April, our volumes had collapsed to about 1% of what they had been historically. So no revenues, you've got a, a large cost base. Um, in our case, we had a, a debtor's book that we had some concerns about people paying us. Um, mm. And the third is that we had a, a, a positive working capital buildup that in an environment where you have no, no volume transactions going through the business, that gets unwound. And that was about a $200 million hit. So we had a, a, a liquidity crunch. And as a consequence of having a liquidity crunch, we were one of the first companies in the ASX to, to raise capital in that period, mm. albeit at distressed prices, which uh, 
were great for people who, who, who pitched in, but you know, devastating for investors who had been with us for the long term. And just to remind you, as uh, you've been kind enough to, to talk about our past over the years, you know, we started off, uh, at least I did, nine years ago as, as the MD of the business, and we were trading at uh, basically a $1.50 share price, $1.70 share price. That went as high as $17. And then we obviously had to raise money again at $1.70, and today we're trading um, around the $4 number. So we've had a, a very volatile period, and but thankfully we've come through the capital raising to, to the extent that we're in a secure position for um, at least the next couple of years based on that and a convertible note that we raised uh, in uh, July as well. Mm. Were you heartened at the way that the market responded to your request for capital? Because you know, th there are times when companies want capital and no one wants to give them any capital. It was very heartening. It was one of the, the things that we took away from uh, the exercise or sorry, took away from the process was that uh, there were many people who knew the plight and we'd you know, hired bankers to, to go through and, and help us with uh, extending the, the story to, to the investment community. And most people didn't want to see us fail. And obviously in the end, when we did um, complete the raising, it was substantially oversubscribed and there were a sense of relief, but there was also from our side, but a sense from the investment community that it would have been a shame that Webjet, which had been a successful Australian business that had taken its wares offshore and been successful internationally. And, you know, I'll hop back to the 2019 results. 60% of our EBITDA was for a business that we started up only six years ago. So it was, it was one where there was a sense of relief. There was a sense of, uh, expectation that we could continue our growth story once the, the pandemic had subsided. And there was great support across the, the broader investment community. And we've seen that um, continuously over, you know, the, 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 the bond note that we raised in July in addition, and then the support and the feedback that we've had from our investors has been, uh, has been it would be almost overwhelming how positive they've been about the business mm. over that journey. All right. Now, Apart from the fact that you know it's it's a great joy of life for me to be able to you know talk to you, um, there, there is a, actually a, a monetary reason why I, I've got you here, and I want to ask a few questions on behalf of my beloved viewers that will, will actually help us understand where your company is going. First question. How important is the Australian domestic travel market to your bottom line? Give us some sort of percentage. Sure. So um, we have three divisions, and one is the Webbeds B2B business, which um, uh, accounts for about 60% of our, our profit. And um, we have the Webjet OTA business, which is impacted by the closure of international borders in Australia and the closure of domestic borders. The way our business is carved out in that uh, in the OTA business, the, the brand that most of your viewers will know us by, the one that you see on TV and, and on billboards, et cetera, is that we have 85% of our volume is domestic bookings and 15% are international bookings. And by revenue and TTV, uh, 
65% is domestic and 35% is international. So in the current environment where um, domestic bookings uh, a fraction of what they used to be in international book bookings are virtually non-existent, um, we're, we're in a scenario where if we get to 23% of our previous volumes, we will be profitable in that division. Mm. At the moment, we're tracking at around about 16%, so we're sort of two-thirds of the way there. Um, we're extremely optimistic that once one of the borders, either New South Wales to Queensland or New South Wales to Victoria opens, that we get to at least break even, and when two of the borders open, we'll be profitable again. One of the things that is important for investors to note about our business um, since we last spoke is that the, the consequence of the pandemic has meant that we've taken a significant amount of costs out of our business mm. and therefore our break-even and profitability numbers are much lower than they used to be. So the scalability on the upside is quite considerable at this point in time. Mm. How, how uh, helped were you in your to international bed business, um, hotel uh, bed um, bookings, by the fact that Europe opened up to tourism um, probably earlier than what most people expected? Only marginally we were helped. Um, the unfortunate consequence of our model is that it's a longer lead time booking model. Mm. And many of the, the, the European countries were still in lockdown in May and they gave um, questionable uh, indications about when they would open up. So there was no certainty to the market. And most of the market was last minute bookings in, in, in the month of July and August. So we did have a, a, a we had an uptick. We went from 2% of our volumes in, in of, of our historic volumes in May up to about 13% across the group. So it was a sixfold increase but it was still a long way from uh, our expectations uh, of a normal summer and uh, a significant way from uh, profitability as well so the as as i've given the the story for the the ota business which uh, which you know could be a month or two away from uh, from at least break even if not uh, cash flow positive um, the b2b business is going to be uh, a longer cycle to, to get to break even mm. as a consequence of the fact that we're about to go into a second phase of lockdowns in uh, in Europe at the moment. Mm. Your monitoring of that, um, how serious will those lockdowns be compared to the first round? Uh, look, uh, you're in the hands of politicians mm. at this point and they're making decisions that are, uh, are so significant and broad-ranging, but... The, uh, the the precedent is 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 limited, so their exposure is is completely limited to the thinking required to the nuanced thinking that's required to to get through it. I can just say that compared to Australia, the general sentiment from the vast majority of um, the populace is they're sick and tired of it, and they're not going to take it. And you know, Italy is just going into the early stages where they've had a curfew imposed on them, let alone a lockdown, people are riding on the streets. So I, I, I think there will be a um, more civil unrest than was demonstrated in Australia in the second phase lockdown. The expectation is, or the hope is, that by the middle of next year, international travel will be um, 
um, on the cards. And I've linked it to hopefully the arrival of a vaccine late this year, early next year. I, I, if I was you, I would be doing my best to be an expert on the the, the likelihood of a vaccine and its, uh, the, its ability to change the working environment that's important to my business. What's your take on vaccines and its ability to help turn around your business? Uh, uh, I think your summation is 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 our view at, at Webjet that the um, the next uh, three to four months there will be uh, a release of a vaccine that's deemed um, clinically effective and uh, it will be rolled out and by the end of 21 most of the the western world for those who have chosen to be vaccinated will be vaccinated so we are um, of the view that if that does happen then the summer will be much better for us in, in the web beds business and uh, as soon as people feel safe to travel again in significant numbers our business uh, should revert because of the pent-up demand mm. to uh, not quite the levels that we ex we experienced in 2019, but the, the rebound should be quite significant and it will be immediate. So um, I, I, I'll paint the, the, the picture that if, if the domestic market in Australia opens up and we get 50% capacity, then we're materially profitable in that division. If the vaccine's in place and the international market opens up, in light of the fact that the following two things have happened in our domestic business, in our OTA business. One is that a significant number of the bricks and mortar retail outlets have been shuttered and they've been shut for good. Um, so there's just less physical presence on the high street. That will be um, a fill up to our business. In the last four months, our underlying Webjet OTA business has basically captured double the market share that we have historically. So um, we're really well positioned as many of the platform businesses that are online have uh, have done really well in this pandemic with the exception of, of, of travel stocks for, for the reasons that are obvious. So that we think the rebound, uh, our business will, will be really well positioned. And the second is in an environment where you've got sketchy flight set schedules as a consequence of not having um, the same demand uh, across the board, our ability to do mix and match through our, uh, our platform, the Webjet platform, will be um, fundamental to people choosing us. So we're, we're pretty optimistic that the, the competitive environment is favourable to us and we're pretty optimistic that when, once the vaccine is in place, the pent-up demand is, uh, is so significant because I'm sure someone like yourself who's... Uh, who's uh, an entrepreneurial and creative guy would just love to get out there and mix with the real world rather than virtually as we are today. Yeah, that's right. And, and being a 24-karat gold yuppie, I'm dying to go overseas. And you're, you're suggesting that by the European summer, uh, there's a high likelihood that 24-karat gold yuppies will be able to travel if they've been vaccinated. Even, even the sterling silver yuppies <laughs> will be able to travel. Um, it'll be, um, it won't quite be business as usual, but there'll be a, a significant reversion to normal activity. Mm. You're so uh, inclusive, John. That's one of your strongest characteristics. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. The, the silver's got to run. All right. Now, um, I, I guess um, a fair question is, uh, is, is there is talk that our borders, apart from WA, will be open by Christmas. 
Um, yep. said, yeah. So that will have a you if that happens, if every border apart from WA is open, you guys are yep. profitable. For the webjet business, uh, most definitely. Okay. Um, therefore, the next question is. What is the scariest and most worrying scenario for you and the business for 2021? Uh, clearly, it, 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 everything, everything, everything that uh, that uh, we're basing our numbers on and our assessment is on getting a vaccine in place and people being comfortable traveling in significant numbers. That's that's the the, the standout challenge that we face but as an opportunity for us um the 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 crisis hasn't been wasted internally so i I remember that uh, we raised the capital on april 1st so that was survival day we had a massive hangover on april the 2nd and then on april the 3rd um i got the team together and said we can't waste the, the the crisis and to that extent, there's been um, significant work done across the entire organisation about taking costs out of the business, and I'll put that into perspective. We we started, um, you know, pre-April, we started with uh, north of 2,300 employees. Um, we will finish at roughly 1,600 employees. We have um, utilised automation tools, AI, and we've spent considerable time and effort on the back end of, of our processes to ensure they're all standardised so that when we do recover, we can handle the volumes with significant less people and less costs, and therefore the, the drive to profitability occurs at a much lower level than it has historically. So in the rebound and in our calculations, if we get to somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of our previous volume, we expect to make the same profit as we did in 2019, which is 155 million at an EBITDA level. Mm. So, um, I guess the the next um, obvious question is: Are you planning on sending Josh Frydenberg a Christmas card this year? <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, I've delicately uh, avoided public commentary on any political figure over the last nine years. I'm not about to start today, but uh, there are there are people that I'm um, happy to send Christmas cards to and there are some who I'd be uh, happy to send a uh, the alternative version of a Christmas card to. Uh, I, just would, I just would have thought that, you know, JobKeeper would have been really relevant for your business. You would have passed the 30% test pretty easily. Yeah, we did qualify in JobKeeper, the, 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 and, and we're obviously grateful for all for, um, federal support that we've received. Mm. The, the scenario, though, in, in, our, in our business is uh, of, our, of our what was 2,300 employees, we have less than 200 in Australia. So mm, okay. as, as, as you know, it's an international business, mm. and in the end, apart from uh, some money in Spain and a little bit of money out of the UK, um, the vast majority of the jurisdictions where we had employees, there was no, uh, there was no support from the governments there. So that was unfortunate for yeah. us. But uh, yeah, we are certainly grateful of the support that uh, the gov- federal government has given us. Well, John, less happy with some of the state premiers. Yeah, you have been, or not, or not as happy. 
Less yes, happy. yes, I can think of one in particular. You wouldn't be, <laughs> and there's a second one out west that you're probably not too impressed with as well. I, I, the bottom line, I guess, is, and this is my final question to you. Um, yeah, you know, despite the fact you don't wear a tie, and despite the fact that you often wear a crazy shirt with a jacket, um, you have been uh, an impressive uh, leader of a public leadership company, John. I don't give compliments easily, um, but what have you learnt about leadership and running a public company from this you know, hitherto unexpected event? Well, thank you for your kind words, Peter. I certainly appreciate it and I've always enjoyed um, coming in to have a chat. I think you always give a, a fair interview, but uh, more importantly, um, you know what you're talking about and you've done some homework and, and, and the questions clearly reflect that. Um, before I answer the question, I'll, I'll just say one of the, the interesting things that have occurred in our business um, over the last eight months is that pre-pandemic, we had roughly 10,000 retail investors. The vast majority of those are Australian. Post-pandemic, and as recently as the last time we checked, which was about two weeks ago, we now have 65,000 retail investors. So uh, your audience must be surging or the good word that you put in for Webjet has clearly uh, influenced people to, uh, to, to, to take stock. And we're obviously uh, pleased that uh, we've uh, got an increased retail base and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting aspect that's fallen out of the, the pandemic that uh, a lot of the brands that people are familiar with have been the ones that have picked up retail investors over that course, which I think is, at least from our perspective, an interesting observation and and reflects um, perhaps a change of emphasis. Where in the past we we directed the vast majority of our of our public uh, discussions around analysts and the institutions who previously would would have held you know roughly three quarters of our share register. So that's clearly changed on a leadership front. Um, the, the, to me, the most important thing is um, conveying the sense of urgency to, to, to people about this is not going to, uh, to decimate the business and that there is always um, a way through and that you need to get the team bought into that, uh, that you know, strategic objective, get bought into the worldview that we have and want to continue to con contribute because people are incredibly stressed around what's happening. You just see it uh, um, just reading, you know, re the un unrelenting bad news of picking up a newspaper or TV which sensationalises and trivialises what are difficult elements that we need to deal with and then you've got social media piling in. So in that unrelenting sense of doom it's important to keep people's spirits up and be caught in people that they have the sense that you know coming to work even if it's virtually isn't an ordeal coming to work should be uh, a key contributor to, to to feeling good about themselves and feeling good that they can contribute to to a broader cause so getting people to buy into that has been uh, the most significant challenge that we've faced over the last uh, six months or so. All right, mate. Well, given those numbers, 10,000 to 65,000, I really need you to succeed. <laughs> really do. And if you don't, I'm going to have to go after you. <laughs>
Uh, well, um, 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 as, as you know, I'm always up to the fight, but um, no one's more motivated than I to succeed. So be delighted to, to continue the dialogue with you over the ensuing years. And, and, and hopefully we're talking about uh, the recovery and talking about how well we're doing in that recovery and how we're winning share from our competition. That, that's a much more favourable conversation uh, piece than, uh, than this one. Okay, John. Thanks for joining us on the program, mate. Great. Thanks, Peter. Hey, Peter. Hi, Claire. <laughs> Did you know that women retire with 47% less superannuation than men? Yeah, I did, Claire, because for something like 30 years, I've been trying to get women to be real and men to be really educated about their super. And I think it's been terrible to think that women's superannuation is so low. Exactly. But did you also know that one in two women see investment industry communications as being complicated? A large number feel intimidated and about one in five find them tailored to men. Yeah. I haven't seen that that data, mm. um, but I'm not surprised. I think a lot of men get intimidated by by money and super and all that sort of stuff. But one thing I have learned over the years is that when women get really interested, they're better at managing money than men. Exactly. Oh, I see how quickly he came in on that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what we're aiming to do with Tilly Money. Yeah. So Tilly Money is a place to come and learn about money, how to understand it, harness it, and importantly, how to grow it. So we're trying to help women achieve their financial independence by removing any disparity in the accessibility of financial knowledge. So Peter, visit tillymoney.com.au where you can read our articles, sign up to the newsletter, or listen to the podcast. Isn't it amazing that for someone like me, who my whole life I've been inspired by my wife Maureen Jordan mm. um, she's come up with an idea like Tilly who would have thought <laughs> <laughs> well at the moment most of us are a little bit uh, worried about the future uh, of 2021 everyone hopes that the optimistic scenarios work out let's talk to Ying Ye uh, Cheng, who is the Portfolio Manager Director of Coolabar Capital, to see if she can either make us happy or make us scared about 2021. Ying Yi, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter, for having me on the podcast. Okay. So I think people need to know what is Coolabar Capital and what do you do there? Yes, yeah, so Coolabar Capital is an active fixed income manager. So we run um, multiple sort of mandates. So we're running 22 portfolios um, and our focus is more on alpha generation, focusing on liquid high grade fixed income securities. And the team is very large. So we have 25 full time staff and we have five portfolio managers and 13 analysts, and we're running more than $4.4 billion in total. So tell us about how active you are in the market. Well, Peter, I would say that we are the most active trader of Aussie fixed income globally. So we're trading at least 70 times a day and $100 million a day. I can tell you last week there was a day where we traded $560 million in one day. So the team are extremely busy um, and that's why we do what we do. We are trying to drive returns by 
you know, actively trading, finding those mispricings and, you know, rather than buying and holding to maturity. We focus on capital gains and then we move on to the next capital gain. Yeah. I guess to a normal person, they would say, so are you guys bond fund managers? Yes. Yeah. And I, that's what I think that most people will identify you as. And and people in the past have heard me interview uh, Chris Joy. Um, we've been fighting and supporting each other for <laughs> over a decade. Um, economists do tend to argue with one another. But I think I should say up front that um, you guys are going to be managing my Switzer higher yield fund, um, a bond fund, and um, that's why I really wanted to get to know uh, you as well because you're one of the, the main players there. Oh, thanks, Peter. No, we are very, very excited about this new fund um, that we're working together with you guys on. Mm. To, to, for, for people who don't understand how a bond fund manager works, why don't you just give us an idea of the day-to-day operations and what you need to do ultimately to get the best possible return out of a, a market where the, the yields or the interest rates seem so unbelievably low? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I must say that we are very, firstly, very different to your typical bond fund manager as well. Um, but if we talk specifically more about, you know, traditional bond funds, uh, traditional bond funds tend to be a lot more buy and hold to maturity. Mm. So you tend to have, you know, a portfolio of anywhere between, you know, 300 to maybe 2,000 securities. So you have a diversified portfolio. Uh, and the way that in fixed income you can drive more return is to take on more beta risk. Mm-hmm. So this could include interest rate duration risk. So investing in longer dated fixed rate bonds. Uh, it could also include, you know, giving investors more credit risk. So going down into sub-investment grade, into unrated securities, or it could involve, you know, giving investors illiquidity risk to drive more returns. So investing in illiquid securities, illiquid loans, etc. So obviously we're seeing with rates so low, the whole idea of using interest rate duration or investing in longer dated fixed rate bonds has really been exhausted now. Mm. So the way that you can, you know, in this low rate environment, a lot of people are, you know, extending down the credit risk spectrum to drive more return or they're investing in illiquid products to drive more return. At Coolabar, we are incredibly different to your traditional fixed income bond funds. So we drive returns through alpha generation and a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of the investment uh, management industry like to talk about alpha, but alpha in our world is very simple. So we are simply looking for mispricings. That is our source of alpha. Mm. And we are looking for bonds that are mispriced that are essentially paying too much interest after you adjust for their risk factors. So after you adjust for their industry, the liquidity of that bond, you know, what is its credit rating? Where does this bond sit in the capital structure? 
What is the currency of the bond? And if that bond is paying too much interest, then we will look to buy that bond. Mm. And as that interest rate, that traded interest rate, then drops towards fair value, then we sell it for a capital gain. Mm. But in yes, so so in yeah. a sense, you're you're continually looking at all the possible bonds that are out there, uh, from government to corporate uh, type bonds. And you're trying to see if someone has, in a sense, offered too much for money uh, and over time they'll realise that and that, 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 that price will, will go down but you'll buy in at the high one and you make a profit when that, the market, in a sense, reprices it properly. Yeah, basically. Mm. And, but in order to do that, you need a very large team, hence why we have five portfolio managers and 13 analysts. Mm. And, you know, the, the team is made up of multiple PhDs, university medalists, very strong quant background. So we have a dedicated data science team that are running more than 30 different quantitative valuation models that are valuing and revaluing every bond globally that we can invest in and understanding which are exactly those cheap bonds, so those bonds that are paying too much interest. Mm. In addition to that, we have a, you know, credit research team. These are more of your traditional credit research analysts, but they're doing intensive due diligence um, in parallel to what the data science team are doing. And then obviously we have the five portfolio managers as well. Mm. And, and what fascinated me this year is that Chris seems to have taken these people who are normally just w looking at bond market information and he swung them into becoming uh, infection um, experts. Is, is that right? Well, yes. Well, I mean – we have the resources and capability and we, I mean, as I mentioned, we have, we're running more than 30 models. Um, and so the data science team earlier this year in January built live COVID infection tracking models mm. that looked at global infections. And then in addition to that, we also built, you know, forecasting models around infections. And you and are you also using the same... Yeah, being a former academic, I can call these guys pointy-headed academics. Um, do you use these these guys also for working out the likelihood that a vaccine might show up sooner rather than later? Because that's that's a really important medico-economic issue, isn't it? It, it is definitely a very important issue, uh, but thus far we, we haven't <laughs> been forecasting the likelihood of a vaccine. But obviously, you know, as you and I are well aware, we have global resources and, mm. you know, the top universities and pharmaceutical companies all in a race to find a vaccine at the moment. Yeah. Okay, so we've, we've set the scene about what you guys do. Um, we're, we're well aware that you've got an enormous investment in trying to get information at the cutting edge all the time. What is all this information telling you about Australia's economic growth for 2021? Look, uh, there's a lot of you know, potential sort of uncertainty at the moment around vaccines, um, a 
around, you know, global sort of issues, but more with respect to Australia, what we are confident of and, you know, given the macro backdrop is a very supportive RBA Mm -hmm. that is willing to do arguably whatever it takes to get unemployment down. So the RBA obviously has their November meeting next week and we are expecting them to do a range of measures including cutting the cash rate from 25 basis points to 10 basis points. Uh, We expect them to do the same for the term funding facility which is whereby they lend out to the banks out to three years, currently at 0.25%, and we expect them to drop that rate to 10 basis points. We also expect them to lower the three-year government bond yield target as well to the same rate. And the market also has, you know, a range of sort of expectations around quantitative easing, But all in all, we are on the higher end of the expectations around bond purchases. Mm. So we expect that the RBA will buy government securities, uh, so government bonds, out from between five to ten years in tenor, and we think they do that around $140 billion worth. Mm. So if if they're buying government securities... It's, they're effectively pushing up the price of those bonds and the yields fall. The yields will fall, mm. yes. Yep. So, you know, and it will draw. I mean, the idea is to support the, the government and mm. the state governments yep. as well, yep. obviously with their spending programs because, you know, they need to create the jobs in this environment. So, therefore, if you had to talk about the outlook for interest rates in Australia. We've been hearing people say, you know, these could be around here for three years. What's the the house view on where, for example, the cash rate might be in two or three years' time? Well, given that their three-year target at the moment is 0.25%, so that's the three-year government bond yield target is 0.25%, and we expect them to lower that to 0.1% out to three years. So we would envisage that rates are will be lower um, for quite some time. There is a potential option that the RBA could adopt a five-year bond yield target of 0.1% as well. Uh, at this juncture, the board has not, well, the RBA board has not discussed this option, but staff there could be considering an additional target. However, a target would suggest that the RBA expects a longer period of a near zero cash rate if they do do that. Mm. Um, and I suppose the RBA would likely promote it as a tool to lower long-term bond yields, but it would be, a, you know, quite a, quite a signal if it was to do that. Mm. But our core view is more around a three-year government bond yield target. Okay. My, my last, you know, crystal ball question to you, um, Ying Yi, is if by the end of this year all of the stimulus, all of this really expansionary monetary policy ends up meaning that we're growing at fantastically fast rates, where you have to go back and do your 
forecasting on where rates might be in two or three years' time? Yes. I mean, all of this stimulus is, as you and I know, highly inflationary yeah. down the track. And we are already seeing this, you know, transpire through an improving housing market already, mm. as you know. So obviously that has a massive effect, like massive wealth effect. Um, it has knock-on effects for consumption and confidence. Uh, obviously, there's still a bit of uncertainty around, um, around you know, global uh, waves of, well, additional waves of COVID. Uh, however, I think you know down the track rates will be will be higher, but at least in the next twelve months, don't see rates going anywhere, and out past twelve months, maybe. Uh, but I think we really need to work it through the system. Okay, then, I haven't really directly answered your question. No, that's okay. That's okay. That's all right. I, I'm used to people beating around the bush. Now, if someone was listening to this. And, you know, they were toying with the idea of locking their money in for five years because, you know, they've got kids, they've got a good job, but they really couldn't stand interest rates rising much because they've borrowed too much. Is the five-year lock-in a reasonable idea? And by the way, this is not advice. This is just you being asked by someone in a pub because you're an expert on interest rates, what is your inside of you on a five-year lock-in of, of interest rates for a home loan and the rate is spectacularly good. What would you say? I Well, yeah, I would I would lock it in. I personally <laughs> have, but I'm not in a position to give any advice. Of course, we know some advice. advice. This is just you, get, you know, drinking too much and giving us fantastic financial education. That's all it is, okay? Yeah, well, I think fixed rates, fixed rates, Fixed mortgage rates have come down 1.5% since mm. April last year. We are at the lower bound. I mean, obviously, as I mentioned, we're expecting that the RBA cuts rates again. Yeah. But the reason why we've seen a drop in fixed mortgage rates is because of the term funding facility, which the RBA created early this year to support the banks. Yep. And the idea was that they would lend out to the banks at 0.25% out to three years so that the banks then could pass that on to households yep. like ourselves and obviously businesses. Mm. And that is why you've seen the fixed mortgage rates that the banks are offering drop mm. dramatically. So, you know, this is as good as it gets, I think, for fixed mortgage rates uh, in the in the near term. Yeah, great stuff. I thought you'd say that, and I'll emphasize this is not financial advice. It's just brilliant financial education by someone who knows a little bit about interest rates. Now, Ying Yi, I look forward to working with you with our Switzer Higher Yield Bond Fund, and uh, let's hope you absolutely kill them and get some great returns. Thank you so much, Peter. And that's the show, and I should add that John Gusick actually is the MD, not the CEO, but there's no CEO to be offended because there is no CEO. He is the MD. Thanks for joining us. I'll talk to you guys next week. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>